Welcome to the Law of Startups Podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I'm Joe Wallen. Thank you for being with us uh, today. We are lucky to have in the studio uh, Mr. Kevin Ober of Divergent Ventures. Thank you for being with us. You're, you're welcome. Happy to be here and happy to be with all the folks who will be listening. <laughs> yeah, so tell us. So Seattle, tell us, tell us about Divergent Ventures. You guys are a Seattle headquartered firm. Although you make investments up and down the West Coast. Correct. So tell us about you. Sure. So Divergent is a 10-year-old three-person firm. Uh, my, myself and a partner, my partner Rob Shirtliff and my partner Todd Warren. Um, we have, like I say, we've been at it for 10 years now and uh, on our fourth fund. We are smaller fund size investors. Our typical bite size is somewhere in the half a million dollar to a million dollar range. Um, typically, that puts us in the seed category uh, for, for so first institutional money into these companies that we invest in. We invest in four main areas, um, cloud computing, big data, data-driven applications, and then we have historically done some storage-oriented things, but that mostly is moving around to data movement today rather than storage per se because it's mostly at the software level. Interesting. So you guys are on four, your fourth fund. That's good. We are on our fourth fund. Yep. That's it. So, how long have you been ticking away then? Yeah, as I said, we've been at it for about ten years, okay. um, and we do about three-year cycles. We're just uh, we're about halfway through our fourth fund, and our typical portfolio is ten or twelve companies across those four areas that I described. Although, if you'd notice, they're all fairly broadly described areas, so it gives us a fair amount of flexibility to do do anything that we would want to do. Yeah, um, we can fit them in one of those categories and say we're very focused. Sure. So, <laughs> tell us. I mean, Oh, go ahead. About sure. about the the big data stuff. So yep. w- sometimes we talk on this show about machine learning and and kind of where things are going. Yep. Tell us about like it, big data is something that I feel like I've got some tangential understanding of through the machine learning stuff I've looked at. But what do those companies look like? What, like what is a big learning or deep learning? Or, sorry, big data company. Like what does that what does that look like? Are they making tools to manage big data? Yeah. So we look at both. Um, Tools that are, are used by big data folks, mostly with, right now we're investing in companies that do uh, the collection and massaging of data um, in terms of uh, they have tons and tons of data. We look for companies, and this kind of crosses over into our, our, our data-driven application bucket as well. Those two are fairly closely aligned. Um, where we're looking for companies that have data sets that didn't exist five years ago, and you're doing some kind of processing of that data that you couldn't have done five years ago because cloud computing wasn't around to make it really cheap and, and cost-effective to, to manipulate and analyze big piles of data. Um, so we really like companies that, you know, our company Pushspring here in town, for example, is a company that collects data uh, from a corpus of, has a corpus of data around uh, mobile devices. And so they collect uh, information about mobile devices and then, um, you know, make a business out of selling that data to advertisers to be able to target mobile data users for ad, for native app, app native apps. Yeah, uh, is it safe apps, to assume... That you, I mean, as if if you're investing in that, and it's one of the areas you specialize in. Or, so, so tell us, is, do you think that's kind of one of the up and coming things that's still still lots of opportunity there? Is is that an area that you've pinpointed as as something that's particularly interesting in the market, or do you guys just have domain expertise there? No, we we think it's you know we're more driven by what we think is interesting going forward. We're two of my my two partners are technologists. You know, wrote code for Microsoft for fifteen and twenty years each. Um, I'm a business guy by training who uh, came out of the, the financial world and then got uh, fortunate enough to get hired by Vulcan Ventures, which is Paul Allen's investment group here in town back, back in the early 90s. <clears throat> and so I cut my teeth working for Paul and learned how to do the venture business when I was with with Paul. And so I'm more of a generalist than I am a specific uh, you know, ex- subject matter expertise from a technical perspective. 
but you know, if you hang around with technologists long enough and often enough, you get to be pretty good at understanding what they're talking about. You can tell good ones from bad ones and, you know, people who are realistic about their schedules and those kinds of things. So, uh, but in terms of big data, you know, big data is an overused term and it means a tons of different things to different people. For us, it really is about, again, like I said, the data sets that didn't exist and then what you do with that data. We're not, we're not often investing in things that are, um, you know, Horizontal platforms in the big data world are not very specific, not very likely to get funding from us. But somebody who comes in and has a use case that says, hey, I can take this data from some customer and I can add some of my own data to it and we can do some really cool value proposition for the customer that it increases their revenue or you know, gives them some insights or something that they weren't able to do before. Those are the kinds of things that get us most excited from that perspective. Yeah, it's, it's pretty funny. I, was, I overheard somebody say the other day something about so the, the the mumbling from this person was just something like, I just need to find the right data cluster or something like yeah. that. <laughs> I mean, it is amazing when you when you have a bunch of data you, it, it, you, and you can run machine learning through the data sets. You can learn things yep. or derive things you just never yep. perceived before. Yep, and the niches for where you can actually, you know, you have to do value propositions because the big guys, uh, you know, Microsoft and Google and, and, and Amazon are all going to sell via their clouds. AI and machine learning systems. So if you just want to have a very highly tuned algorithm to run a bunch of data through as an enterprise, you're probably going to go run, if you want to run the data yourself, you're likely to go to one of those cloud providers providers and buy it as a service. Right. And what we're looking for are people who can do something different with a set of data of their own. And then again, oftentimes you're taking a set of data that they have available, i.e. The, the, the technology supplier and, and the company's data, and you're pushing those to, you're mashing those together, and then you come out with some really interesting insights. Those are the kinds of things that we find most interesting in the big data world today. It makes sense. I mean, there's, it's one of those, uh, you know, you look at the advances in machine learning and how quickly the algorithms are getting better and able to do things that they haven't been able to do before. And, and to some extent, the limiting factor is, is data. Like you, you need the data to train them. And, uh, and you think about like which companies have that it's a pretty small group. I, I mean, obviously data spread everywhere, but like it's centralized in some very specific places. It's a little scary that, that they, um, you know, hold the keys to being able to, to, um, to make computers smarter. Yep, and they will they will be very hard to compete with because they will have however much data you have, they're likely to have more and able to run it through smarter algorithms written by smarter guys than most small companies are going to be able to. You know, Google can hire tons and tons of AI experts and machine learning experts, and so it's going to be difficult for folks who don't have a very tight value proposition for a very specific set of customers. Um, and again, oftentimes bringing your own data to that party is going to be key, I think, to being able to build something that's unique um, in that value proposition. You're going to need a whole bunch of domain expertise as well, um, you know, in terms of understanding your customer better than, than just a bunch of technologists bringing some technology. Um, we tend to not invest in those kinds of things in general. Um, we're looking for teams that have domain expertise and domain advantage over um, you know, general technologists, and we're looking for folks who, who know and can and take care of the technology and, and write uh, pretty good code. Um, and then, you know, the right financial team and, you know, the right sets of expertise around around the, the value proposition that they're trying to put together for customers. Yeah, we've, um, so I gave, a, I gave a talk on machine learning, uh, talking about a, a project that I had worked on um, at a I gave the talk at a mobile developer conference and, and the, the part of the takeaway was, you know, just how exciting the, the opportunities are there. And, and the thinking is, you know, you got these big companies like Google that are going after stuff. They've, you're right. They have, they have all the really smart PhD guys out, out of, uh, out of the best schools and they've got tons of money, but they're going after really major big 
uh, big problems and, and the number of problems that can be solved by AI and machine learning are so broad and, and, and deep that it just seems like there's an umbrella underneath the big players that, that I don't know if that, that umbrella or the area under that umbrella is attractive to, to the VCs and the angel investors, because maybe the opportunities don't get quite as big, but there's still so many. Um, it seems like an exciting area. Yep. No, definitely. We are definitely looking for, you know, so we are seeing opportunities today that are pretty interesting where there are folks who are, are taking advantage of the fact that Google and Amazon and Azure and all these folks have these services that you can buy AI uh, services from them. So they're, they're, turn, they're learning how to tune those algorithms themselves to do a specific, again, to do a specific value proposition where they have way more domain expertise than some generalist AI person at Microsoft is likely to ever have about retail or healthcare or, you know, some industrial, you know, you know um, self-driving cars. I mean, there's just a tons of different areas where you're going to be able to take lots of data and apply it to make uh, everything smarter and, and more efficient. <clears throat> Yeah, well, uh, our our audience, I think, you know, we we only have so much input on on who's actually listening, but we need more data. We need more data on who's listening to this show. If you listen to the yep. show, like shoot one of us an email, or go to the the Law of Startups podcast, lawofstartups dot com, and and shoot us a message just to let us know who you are. But my impression is that you know we're making this show for startup folks, people that are working in a startup, people that are trying to build something, and I know. Um, you know, one of the things I always like to ask uh, VCs and angel investors when they're on the show is is sort of what they're looking for and, and maybe to identify, you know, common mistakes that they see over and over again when people pitch them. Um, because no, nobody's nobody's seen more pitches than guys like you. And yeah. uh, and, and, and once you've seen the mistakes, uh, you know, you kind of they're easy, I imagine, to identify. So so anything, any help you could give to people listening, I think would be really appreciated. Sure. So in general, what we're looking for is the same thing I would assume that most other investors are, which are very high quality teams uh, going after large market opportunities with some kind of uh, hopefully technology as well as domain expertise advantage that we that over other teams that are doing it. Um, you know, the ideal candidate for us is someone who's spent their career inside of some kind of an industry and they know a problem in the industry and the company that they're working for doesn't want to go uh, tackle that opportunity before whatever the reasons are. Sometimes they don't think it's big enough. Sometimes they don't understand it, whatever it is. But some se- senior level executive who, who looks at an opportunity and sees it every day in their everyday life uh, and knows that nobody's solving this problem, problem because customers keep telling them that this is a problem that they need solved and they're not getting it solved. We love those entrepreneurs who say, I'm going to go solve that problem because I know the industry better than anybody else. So therefore, you have all the connections you need in your industry. You know who to talk to. You know who your first 10 people you're going to go try and sell are. Um, so those are the kinds of things that we look for. Um, you know, going as early as we go, you, we're not necessarily looking for complete teams. Um, you know, we will invest in companies that don't have complete teams um, because that's what you're doing at the seed stage. So, um, you know, the further along the product can be, the better. Um, you know, from our, even from our perspective, um, you know, the, the most expensive money you take is the first money that you take. So the furthest, the further you can get along in terms of your thinking and product development, et cetera, uh, before you actually take, take venture capital, the better off you'll be in the long run. Um, and then be selective about who you pick. Uh, in terms of common mistakes, uh, I think the, the biggest mistake I see across pretty much everybody who comes in is that these are very, particularly technology businesses are very complex businesses and very complex ecosystems. Um, and your job as the entrepreneur is to make me as an investor and in, other investors and your customers 
get rid of that complexity. Explain it in a simple way so that I can understand how your value proposition is going to benefit your customers. You know, the, the, the digits, the ones and the zeros, and, you know, uh, the, how cool your algorithm is, that's all fine and dandy, but none, no, none of your investors are likely going to be super well qualified to identify and say, boy, that's a better algorithm than some other algorithm that does the same things. So what we really care about is why do your customers care about what you're, what you're proposing to do? Um, and so that's really where I see not enough focus, particularly from technical entrepreneurs who want to talk about how whiz-bang cool their technology is. And as investors, we think that's nice, but that's not that's the beginnings. What we really want to know is how you're going to solve problems for your customers and who are your customers ultimately going to be, why are they going to buy from you, um, those kinds of things. Um, and so you know, even though you're excited about the technology because you're a technologist, you do have to convince your investors why it's a business. And that's probably the biggest mistake. And that can manifest itself in a number of ways. You know, 30 deep slide decks that talk all about how cool the technology is. And then one slide at the end that says, and we're going to sell it doesn't say who you're going to you sell gotta, it like, to, walk. how you're going to sell it, you know, what's your selling motion, are you going to sell it inside sales, outside sales, you know. Yeah, it's uh, not a given. Like, it, it kind of demonstrates like if somebody's, t- I'm, I'm guilty of this sometimes too with the projects that I work on, but, you know, the tech guys and the guys that want to build things tend to focus on building it, assuming that the sales process is going to be like, and then we'll sell it. And the people that know, once once you've been through that process a few times and built it and then tried to sell it and have it not be not work out, you realize, yep. you know, th- there's more to it than just, and then we'll sell it. If, if you can't explain to people how you're going to sell it and how you know that, that you're confident that those people will be there, you know, you're, you're missing part of the story. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, that's, that is actually the more difficult thing to do today. You know, with all the languages and the abstractions and all the things in the cloud computing, the technology piece is actually much easier than the business trying, you know, how do you, how, particularly in the software world, how do you actually get value for what you build in the software world is extremely difficult today. Um, you know, in the old days, you went out and you built something really cool that was really hard and it took $10 million to get to, pro, you know, to get to product to the point where you could sell it. And then you could charge a million dollars for a perpetual license or $5 million for a perpetual license. But those, that world doesn't exist anymore. You know, the new software world is a SaaS-based environment where you're lucky if you can get thousands of dollars on a monthly basis per seat, per user. Um, and that means that you don't have nearly as much margin or revenue or all the other things that you need to build a real business to, to play with. So you've got to be way more thoughtful about how you uh, are going to sell it, um, you know, how are you going to cost-effectively find customers, get them to use your product, try your product out, convert into a customer. You know, there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on in that world that is different than the old way of selling. Yeah, it's funny in the old days, like, and people that are still in the old way uh, are thinking, oh man, how do I, how do I move my business to a SaaS business so that I can get recurring revenue and I can be more attractive to, to investors in the market and, and I'll be able to, you know, support a higher uh, valuation of my company. And then, you know, folks, some folks are in the SaaS business scraping out, you know, a thousand dollars a month from customers and they're saying, how do I, how can I get back to charging people $5 million for a perpetual license? It's a, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's not a silver bullet. Just the, 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 the picking the, the business model is not enough. I guess it's sometimes it's, uh, it's yeah, picking that, the right one for the right business. Yep. Yeah, that you have to marry. That's the thing is you have to marry, you have to figure out what value the customer is willing to pay for your, your service or product, you know, however you want to think about it. Um, uh, and then work backwards from there and say, okay, if I'm going to get a hundred thousand dollars a year for my software license, that's great. If you can do it, 
for a number of years and you probably can escalate it and get a couple hundred thousand dollars if you keep adding on to your software SaaS service. You can, that's the beauty of a software-based SaaS service is you can continually add additional features and things that you can charge for on top of uh, what you already have. But then that you have to work backwards from there and say, okay, if my price point is ten grand a month, then that means I can't spend a whole lot of money attracting and selling and getting them to use my product because um, there's just not that much margin in there. So I've got to go figure all that out. So you have to almost work backwards and say, okay, if that's if that's what what I have available from a revenue perspective, that's what the customer is willing to pay. Then that means I have to adopt X kind of sales process. Yeah, I mean, it makes it like you think about. Um you always hear about, you know, people working on minimal viable product and trying to figure out how they can prove the market or find out if there's a, a market there before they build. But to, to give some perspective to that, imagine if, if you were sitting, sitting in Kevin's shoes and you're listening to a, a pitch and you had a choice between investing in two companies and one company said, I've got a customer on the hook. We've sold them a you know, million dollar software package, but it's not built yet and we need money to build it. Versus uh, trying to you know pitch someone to invest in a company that says we, we want to we have this thing we've built and and it's it's almost there and we and then we're going to go find some customers um, you know <laughs> every every day of the week I'll pick the one where the, the the sale has already been made because technology is is um you know if you throw enough money at technology you'll be able to build it but there's no there's total variability into whether you'll be able to sell something correct yep that is the challenge today again it's. It's, uh, it's much more difficult to sell than it used to be, and you have to come up with innovative models uh, to be able to do it. And the good, one is, the good news is, is that it works really well. You know, these SaaS-based businesses, when they're clicking, they hum, and they don't cost a lot to attract the customers, and the margins are good, and you can grow extremely rapidly, and you have recurring revenue. And so it's a nice flywheel, but um, you have to understand that you have to go figure out what your flywheel is. So you guys will come in before product market fit is found? Uh, it depends on the business. It depends right. on the business. Um, we would prefer not to, but we have done it historically. We have we have come in when people, uh, you know, have a product concept. Um, you know, nowadays uh, technologists can usually build fairly inexpensively what they want to build, so they just do that before they actually come and look for venture money. Right. Um, so then we're we're much more about you know trying to figure out if it's a value prop that we think. Um, customers will buy. And we will go in earlier than some. We don't, you know, we are not in a situation where say you have to have five customers under your belt. I mean, it depends on what kind of business you're in. Business to business where you're getting hundreds of thousands of dollars, a typical A guys want to see 10, 20 customers who are actually paying and signed long-term multi-year contracts. You know, we're willing to come in earlier than that in, in many cases and, and often do come in a little bit earlier than that and don't need quite as much customer validation as some of the other folks around town who have bigger piles of capital that they need to deploy. That's where our niche is, and that's where our expertise is, we believe, in terms of, of really coming in and helping companies get to that point where they can go out and raise an A round. Um, that's part of what we do is help these companies think through, okay, how much money do you really need to get to the next step in your in your process so that you're really available for what an A round is? Because what an A round is keeps moving, depending on how hot the market is. Right. right? When it's a hot market, the bar is really high. When it's not as hot a market, maybe the bar gets higher because they're more selective because the market's not as hot and they worry about getting additional fund, funding rounds after them. So, um, you know. Yeah, and we keep changing the, changing the jargon. But uh, so, the, so you guys will lead a deal? Uh, we, have to, we have led. Yep, yeah, we probably lead half of the deals. Uh, other, other times we join a syndicate. 
Okay. Um, you know, sometimes we join an existing round. We fill gaps. You know, we often come in on rounds that they took in a couple of million bucks on their seed round, and they haven't gotten as far as they want to, and so they need to raise another half a million dollars. You know, we come in on those kinds of rounds where somebody hasn't quite gotten as far as they need to to do to raise a, a real A from the larger institutional investors. We can often fill a gap there, where we'll come in and you know, add an additional half a million dollars in, into a round that it's already priced and existing, and they need some additional runway. <clears throat> so, so tell us about how you build how you build syndicates because you you guys you guys try to re, try try to build or try to invest in companies you can attract other investors to, yep. including investors from out of the area. Yep. Yeah. We actually will. We well, I shouldn't say never. We rarely invest in something that doesn't have another institutional investor. Okay. Um, partly because of available funds. You know, our experience when you're going in down the seed round is the entrepreneurs often don't get as far as they hope to with the money that's available. And again, so they often need to go back to the well and say, okay, guys, we need another X number of dollars to get to where we know we need to be uh, to get an actual A institutionally backed A round done. Um, and so we want to have somebody else at the table who we can go to and say, okay, they didn't get as far as we want to. Uh, let's collectively put agree to put another X number of dollars into the company to get us where we need to to be, be able to go out and raise that next round from the, from the person higher up the value chain. Um, so we've done very few deals where we are not part of some kind of a syndicate, whether it's other smaller investors like ourselves, which there are a number of around town. There are other investors who are bigger who will do seed uh, investments, uh, particularly if they know somebody um, who's in there who will do the work. I mean, often some of them know us well enough and know that we actually are in there working a deal hard. So, Because the biggest problem, why the reason why bigger institutional investors don't do a lot of seed deals is your most valuable time, as uh, your most valuable asset as a, as a partner in a venture capital firm is time. And there's only so many hours in a day that you can be helping your companies and so many boards that you can participate in and be a valuable, useful board member and director. Um, and so your most valuable resource is time. And so... Um, you can pretty much take a fund size, divide it by how many partners they have, um, and then divide the number of dollars per partner by five to seven deals, and that tells you what their typical investment is going to look like, and I have to look like to fit inside their model. All right. So if you're a $100 million fund, you've got four guys, that's $25 million per partner. He wants to do, he or she can do five, maybe seven deals. So you're looking, you know, five, three to five million dollars is their investment sweet spot. And you can do that kind of all the way, you know, if it's a billion dollar fund, you know, you take in, it's the number of partners divided, you know, the number of dollars divided by partner gives you the per partner lifetime of that fund. And he or she is probably investing in multiple funds out of at any given point in time. You'll have some follow on rounds going on from funds from your last fund. So you're still sitting on some boards there and plus your new investments. So that's kind of how the math generally works in the venture world. So that's a, that's a way to find out. That's a quick way to find out, uh, you know, whether or not you're talking to an investor who has a high likelihood of investing in your, your round. If you're talking to somebody whose typical bite size is five million bucks, right, and you're, you know, and you're trying to raise a million-dollar round, that's probably a mismatch. So yeah. You probably want to talk to a different set of investors who are more matched to the kinds of fund round, funding size you're trying to, to attract. That, that's one thing that I, I just think that founders always need help with because they come out of a world where they don't, they don't come out of the investment world. Mm -hmm. So they come out of the, the lab or the, or the garage yep. or they come out of somewhere and they, they just don't know. Yep. And it's hard for them. It's hard mm -hmm. for completely new people uh, – 
you know, first round people, you know, first company people to really understand it, and they need a lot of help. Yeah, and venture venture is kind of its own weird dynamic. Um, you know, and each partnership runs slightly differently. We all have our own, you know, things that have happened. You know, it's a lot of pattern matching. Something that's worked in the past in terms of team and market and dynamics of a market. You'll look at that and say, oh gosh, I made a lot of money investing in something like something over here, and what you're doing looks a lot like what I did over there. That, that's always a good way to get somebody to invest in what you're trying to do. If you're trying to get somebody to do the, something that they've never done before, right. uh, it's a pretty uh, steep hill to climb to get somebody to do something they've never done before. And, you know, so, so, you know, that's yes, what you look for. You look, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just say those are great. Those are great tips. Uh, anything else along those lines would be fantastic because what I'm hearing, you know, that stuff's not obvious to me. And so I would imagine for, for a startup looking to think about who to approach, you know, yep. just targeting that based on, size of the fund and how much they invest plus you know maybe looking at the past deals to find co- yep. companies that have maybe not just invested in the same space but maybe have had some success um yeah that's exactly really where I was that's going really smart to, yep is to is to look at i mean what i tell people at the seed stage deal is a look for retired executives of the industry that you're in i mean one of the differences between the bay area for example and our angel networks here in seattle is in the bay area you know, there's so many more companies in technology that have been built and their senior executives have retired. Um, they don't need necessarily, if you've run a storage company, you don't need some venture guy to tell you what's a good storage company. You know, because you've run companies in that industry, you probably know it better than any individual invest- investor knows it. Um, and so if you can find people who have, who have are senior execs or former senior execs in your industry who know it really, really well and should really under, understand your value proposition, they are great early investors in a company. Um, to go out and identify if you're selling into a certain industry, go work that industry and find the senior executives, and you get you get a twofer out of that. A, you get to talk to them. It gives you a, a reason to talk to them, and you'll learn a bunch about how good your domain expertise really is. Do you really understand the industry as well as you you think you do? And if those people don't under if those people don't get it, if those men and women don't understand your value proposition, you're kind of in trouble, right? Because they are the leaders of the industry or former leaders of the industry. Um, you know, and not everybody knows those folks, but you can usually find some through your network if you're good at it. And that's you know, one of the tests of being a good entrepreneur is how good you are at finding your way to get to the people you need to get to. Whether it's me as a, as a venture investor, you know, we rarely invest in something where we haven't gotten an email from somebody who knows us who says, hey, Kevin, you should look at, at Joe's latest company because it's really kind of cool and I think you find it interesting. If you can't get a recommend, if you can't find somebody in my network to recommend you to me, that's my, the first sign that you're probably not really cut out to be a good entrepreneur because you've got to figure that out. That's right. part of the job is to figure out how to attract the right people and track the right investors. And if you don't know them, go figure out how to meet them. Um, yeah. And my door is always, our door is always open at Diversion to talk to people. But you're going to the top of the stack if you come in from somebody I know, a, a lawyer like Joe, for example, are good leads for us. They'll often our deals come from, from folks who are helping form the companies from the legal perspective. Um, and obviously, there are other lawyers in town who do the same kind of thing. Um, you know, other investors. You know, the former CEOs of companies we've invested in who have become angel investors and put money there into their funds. Those kinds of things. What's the What's the origin of the of the name uh, Divergent Vest, uh, Ventures? Uh, how, how did you guys come up with that? Yeah, we were looking for something unique, and it was one that we could get the top level domain. Even nice. ten years ago, it was a bit of a challenge to find something that was. And you know, we invest a little bit differently than some of the, certainly than the Sand Hill Road guys, because we'll go earlier and you know do some different kinds of things. Um, you know, so, so the diversion is it's like diverting uh, a diversion from sort of the uh, the typical investment. I mean, take a different yep. approach. Yep. 
Again, we're slightly smaller. You know, we're micro VC by today's terms. You know, when we started doing this where you had smaller pools of capital in the tens and twenties of millions 10 years ago, there weren't many people doing it. Um, so we were really one of the first guys to come up with this uh, this concept out of necessity, really. <laughs> Obviously, we'd rather be bigger, but <laughs> uh, but out of necessity, we've gotten been able to get what we have work, and we think we've been pretty effective with it. So. Well, it's so hard because if you, if you have more money, well, then you'd just be forced into doing larger investments. Correct. And then you'd be looking around Seattle for those investment opportunities, and you'd probably spend more time in the Bay Area. Yeah, it's more competitive. I mean, one of the advantages we have is, you know, our terms, our term sheets are rarely competitive term sheets where somebody has three term sheets thrown on the table right. and you're fighting over valuation and, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, in our case, it's much more of, you know, gosh, can we find anybody else who will co-invest with us right. uh, in, a, in a deal that's this early? Um, you know, and that's partly, uh, you know, fund size and that's partly, partly expertise. And that's where we think the holes in the market are both here and in the Bay area. You know, there it's that first million dollars. If it's not strictly angel, which I th- we think we do more than angels, cause this is what we do for a full-time job. So right. we're taking board seats and showing up for the board meetings and asking questions and really helping the entrepreneurs think through how they're building their business. Angels typically don't do that. You right. know, they kind of throw their money over the fence and go play golf. And if you're lucky, you get some active ones who are really there, but are they really, Dedicating as much time as somebody who did they do this with somebody else's money feels compelled to do? Probably not. Right. Well, super fun. So, okay, so so let's just summarize for the for the listeners in the group out there about sort of the what you're looking for again, cloud, big data, data-driven apps. I'd love to hear an example of that. And then storage deals or data movement, data movement companies. Yep. So tell me, tell, if you could tell us more about the two last pieces, data-driven or data movement stuff. Give us some examples if you, if you don't mind. Sure. So for us, a, a good example of a data-driven application is a company we're invested in here in town called Cicido. Okay. Uh, yeah, which, Cicido, which uses, yeah. yeah. Which uses Twitter data yeah. to figure out what you are in your business life uh, interested in. If you're if you're about to go buy a cloud service, you're probably starting to follow things related to cloud services on Twitter to try to you know you're think, following thought leaders, you're following other right. kinds of things. You're open to white papers around those things, and so Cicido uses Twitter as an area to qualify that you are a interested in a particular kind of thing, and it can be anything. Right? They have customers right. from Microsoft to uh, um, you know other kinds of cloud services and all kinds of mostly technology today, but not strictly. Um, they have some financial services folks who use it. Again, in your personal life, and if you're on Twitter, you often go on and start following things that are about personal finances if you're looking for a new financial right. advisor. Right. Um, so it's just a good data, set of data. It's a data exhaust is the term we've been using. Sure. So there's data exhaust on Twitter that's valuable to help you find out what people's intentions are. Of course, the risk there is the Twitter or LinkedIn or wherever you're pulling the data from is those those folks are always monkeying with what you're entitled to get. How much you get to pay? They are so stuff. far knocking wood. We have not had much yet. It's a question of pay. Sometimes they figure out and they want to charge you more, but most of them are pretty good these days in terms of not being ridiculous. Um, but again, that may change over time. But that's a good. That's what we think of as a data driven application again, because that data wasn't really available in an accessible way five or ten years ago. You really couldn't crunch it in the way you could today without cloud services being available. You know, they're built on AWS, so you can go in and you can crunch all the numbers on AWS pretty rapidly. Yeah. Um, and so that wouldn't have been capable to have been done ten years ago. You couldn't. You couldn't get the data. And you wouldn't have had the processing power and cost-effective way to do it. So that's yeah. what we think of as kind of data-driven applications. Okay. Um, so hopefully, that's a good yeah, enough no, explanation that's a really that people good example. get. Yeah. That's a and that's a fun company uh, yep. to see. It's, it appears to be doing great in Seattle. I met the founder a few years back, and I thought, mm-hmm. wow, what a great guy. Yep. 
And so I'm glad to hear they're doing well. Yeah, Asim's done a great job. They're growing rapidly, um, you know, expanding their product set. Again, they're a SaaS-based business, so now they're coming out with product slash service number two, and so they're doing all the right things. Yeah, so. that's fun. Uh, and what's data the, movement? Data. So, tell us about that. So, what we're seeing a fair number of of opportunities today. Haven't invested in any of them yet, but. Um, Data gravity is a big problem in that if you have a large set of data that you want to process, you either have to do it on-prem, which people don't like because it's expensive, um, and they want to be able to move that data into the cloud or a subset of that data into the cloud and process it and, and come it back, pull it back in. That's what we think of as okay. that's kind of the next generation. Storage per se is there's not a whole lot you can do. You can make it faster. You can make it cheaper. But that's a big boy game, you know, Samsung and all those guys who are making solid-state drives, flash drives, and those kinds of things. That's a big boy game. But there are plenty of people who are building or trying to build business around, hey, I've got this data set. I want to move a sub-segment of it up into to Amazon or to Azure or any of these other cloud-based offerings. Do a bunch of processing, run it through one of the algorithms I spoke about earlier, right. uh, and bring it back and have some new knowledge that's gleaned out. But I want to keep my data where it is because, A, that's where there's a large corpus of data there and it's really expensive to move it. I mean, that's why Amazon will send a semi-trailer, a you know, $25 million semi-trailer out to your your building and you can pour all your data into that trailer and then they literally physically drive it back to a data center of Amazon's and plug it in there. And it takes weeks to do all that because data, big data, petabytes, you know, multi-petabytes of data, it's very, very hard to drive it through the network. Uh, but a small subset of that, you can easily spike up into Azure or Amazon Web Services, do some processing, pull it back down, and do. And so that move that whole movement thing of how do you do all that? How do you you, know, you fire up virtual? How do you fire up the virtual machine machines in the cloud where they're going to, or do you do it in containers? All that kind of stuff. That's what we think of as data movement, is kind of uh, you know how you build a service around moving that data from point A to point B, hmm. to, to handle these spikes and those kinds of things. So hopefully that gives some idea of what we think of as next generation storage huh. or data movement ap applications. <clears throat> what are your thoughts, Mike? Yeah, I think those are all kind of interesting areas. That, that there's so many various, uh, you know, data data as a a channel, like so, so many different ways that it can go in terms of ways to create value with data. It's interesting to hear about the different different ways that that uh, people can extract business value from data. Yep. Um, and yeah. we're just, at, you know, we're just at the tip of the iceberg, even though big data from the, from, you know, the Gartner hype curve perspective is kind of on the way down. I think we're just at the beginning of people figuring out how to use data to learn things, improve things, be smarter, all those kinds of things. I think we're just at the beginning of the, you know, the tip of the iceberg in terms of how much we're going to learn and be able to learn from all this data. Um, yeah, well, Kevin, it's been great having you on the on the uh, the show. Uh, how can yeah. people find out more about Divergent uh, Ventures? Yeah, they can just go to divergent.com and and look at uh, what we do. There's some more explanation about what we do and who we are there. Um, you know, people can obviously email me at ober at divergent.com as well. Fantastic. Well, thanks for being on the show, everyone else. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next week.